0: We uh, have uh, just an excellent blessing and a treat this morning. We have um, blessed our pastor um, with some time off this week, much needed time off. And so it is with an honor and really a pleasure that I get to uh, just introduce one of our four elders in our church. If you are visiting with us, there are a few gifts that God gives us every now and then. And uh, Bob Cox is truly one of those gifts that he has blessed Um, centennial with just him as leadership and uh, his encouraging words that he says through. really, if you've been in here any long enough, as many amount of time, he has definitely lifted you up. So um, for all purposes, uh, Bob Cox will be preaching and giving the word this morning. So thank you, Bob. Thanks, Brent. Thank you. um, It's not about me. Um, And I was going to say, you know, if you were visiting, I'm the bullpen, okay? <laughs> kind of like the Rangers bullpen right now. You know, let's not go there. Um, no, but we don't want you to judge us based on me. We have a, we have a great pastor um, whom we love and miss. and uh, So come back if you're visiting. <laughs> um, I had uh, from our CEO in, in uh, at our office this week, we got a little blog post, in, and he calls, uh, called our attention to Beloit College's Mind List. Anybody ever read that? So apparently, well, now you have, yeah. Uh, Les is a professor, so these three professors of literature and culture at the college, every year for the freshman class, they kind of take a look at what, has happened in their lifetime, and what has not happened in their lifetime prior to their being born, and then he also they'll also make a list of different things that they, um, you know, conventional language that they use. I can't read all of it, uh, not in this location anyway. Um, but let me let me just uh, read a couple of things because it really kind of woke me up to how culture is changing, how language changes, and how influential. Especially, uh, Jim Hessen reminded me, technology is, right, on our language and how we approach culture. Um, so here's, here are a few things that the freshman class of this year would, uh, would, would have experienced and not have experienced. Okay, hybrid automobiles have always been mass produced in their lifetime. Google has always been there. In its founding words, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. They've never licked a postage stamp. How about that? Um, email has become the new formal communication, while text and tweets remain enclaves for the casual. Uh, a few other things that are interesting. They've grown up treating Wi-Fi as an entitlement. Okay, Some of us remember when a cell phone was an entitlement. Or not an entitlement, that is Um, But there are quite a few things uh, that are on this list. I'm not going to read them all. But um, an interesting few language uh, items are here. Um, The ones that I can read. (laughs) Smartphone shuffles have always slowed down traffic between classes. Can you interpret that? Here's the interpretation. One can avoid all eye contact as one moves through the matting texting crowd. Um, a significant other who is a bit too Yoko Ono has always created tension. Most of us probably know who Yoko Ono is, right? Even us old guys. Um, that, that interpretation is a partner too hard to handle, hard for your friends to compete with perfection. Okay. Finally, uh, there was one about the redneck teleprompter. As long as they can find a ballpoint pen, they can use their redneck teleprompter. The bigger the back of your hand, the more notes you can include. Just don't get caught looking. All right, so that's the freshman class entering college this year. Um, hopefully none of you guys will use your redneck teleprompter, any of you that are graduating this year. Um, language is significant, and these, these uh, professors have recognized that because if they can't connect with their students, they don't recognize that culture is changing and that the language that their students use is changing, what can they teach, right? Well... Um, There are a couple of other terms that you've probably heard thrown around during the political era now: evangelical, the evangelical voting block, and um, most recently, one of my Jewish friends at work gave me a copy of the Dallas Observer that had this article on the cover. Any anybody seen it? Onward, Christian soldiers! It's on the cover. Yeah, I don't expect you to be reading the Dallas Observer, but um, he gave this to me, and I in deference to him, I read the article. It was very interesting because a reporter had gone out and interviewed people who would call themselves evangelical to see what their voting tendencies would be. And they're anything but homogeneous, right? They're very mixed. People from all ethnicities, different, um, not so much dramatically different religious persuasions, but what we would see is, you know, different subcultures in the Christian community, and they don't vote the same, okay? So, the press saying the evangelical voting block, you know, is totally missing, you know, really what the, the term means. Um, another term that's been thrown around recently in, my, in the literature where I work is the term evangelist, technology evangelist, right? Um, taking the term kind of using some of the meaning, and it's a figurative term, figurative use of language. It's just not, you know, it's not in and of itself bad, but if we're not understanding how the person is using the words, communication is not happening. And the Apostle John in the first century, toward the end of the first century, probably about 50 years after Jesus' resurrection, okay? He's writing um, from Ephesus, more than likely, in 1 John, and one of the things that he's battling is a group of teachers that are manipulating language for their own benefit. So language is really important, and it's specifically more important, most important, when we're talking about truth. Um, Think about the encounters you've had with people that say, oh, I believe in God, or I believe in Jesus. Well, which God do you believe in? Which Jesus is it? Is it the Jesus that's defined for us in Scripture, or is it a Jesus of our own making? And John is going to tackle that as one of the issues. If you'll turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 5, or turn your electronic device to 1 John chapter 5. we um, want to start in uh, verse 18. And uh, before I read the scripture, let me, let me just pray once again for us, okay? Father, thank you so much for Jesus and for the privilege that we have of knowing with confidence we can come based on his righteousness right into your presence. Um, Lord, get me out of the way. Let Jesus be exalted and may your name be lifted up today. May you have the highest and most preeminent place in our lives. We ask in his name, amen. Um, Verse 18, 1 John chapter 5. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding So that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So now when you read the New Testament and you read the letters of Paul, even a couple of other letters here from John, Um, You recognize right away this is not the way letters ended in the first century. Right? How do they typically end? Greet so and so, greet Aristarchus, you know, Timothy and I send their greetings to so and so and greet all the people in your church, and we got five or six people here, you know. Um, They're always kind of sharing greetings at the end. Even so, at the beginning of letters in the New Testament, flip over to 1 John chapter 1. Notice how John begins his letter here. He doesn't say, "From John to the audience," like Paul would say. Even in Second uh, John, Third John, he says, "You know, the elder called himself the elder," and he's, you know, now probably around. If he's, um, if he was twenty at the time of Jesus' life, he's probably around seventy or eighty years old. Um, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we had looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of light. It's not the way you start a letter. He's trying to get some people's attention, right? There's something significant about what he needs to say. And if we dig a little deeper into John's location and the occasion of this letter, and we think about what has happened, what's revealed to us about the church of Ephesus, for example. Uh, We know that Ephesus was founded by Paul on one of his missionary journeys, and he spent an extensive amount of time there, about three years. He then went back and visited with the elders of that church, and he said, guess what? Um, You know, I'm not gonna see you again. He said, I wanna warn you. There are gonna be wolves that will come after your congregation. And he said, even among you, there will be false teachers rising up. Be careful. Be on the lookout. Guard yourselves. This is 20 or so years, maybe even 30 years after that visit from Paul to the Ephesian church that John is writing. And at that time, history tells us that there was the beginning of false teaching that was beginning to really add to the gospel, okay? The gospel says clearly that Jesus, God's son, came, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect sinless life, died paying a penalty of the sins of the world that he did not owe, and that we, as we place our faith in that sacrifice and in his resurrection that he was raised from the dead, We place our faith in that, that we have eternal life. John's going to confirm that. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's talking to believers here. So just in case you had any doubt, when he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols, he's talking to believers, okay? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of Him. We can have confidence that we have eternal life. We know, because up above... So there's teaching coming in to the church that is trying to undermine undermine the gospel, the simple faith and trust in Jesus. And they're saying, "You know what? you've got to know something else. you've got to add to Jesus. You have to have that deeper, that deeper knowledge and later um, Historians would tell us that that actually grew into what we call Gnosticism, which is a focus on knowledge, and it really is a combination of kind of platonic philosophy that says our world is divided, and that the spiritual, the good, is ethereal, and the material is evil, and therefore everything material is evil. It really doesn't matter what you do with your body. Even Paul countered that. He said, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Glorify God in your body. So what you do with your body is very important. Um, But this teaching is creeping in, trying to undermine the gospel. And so John has to warn these people. Keep yourselves from idols. Now, why? Okay, Ephesus, who who knows about Ephesus, right? Huge temple there, right? There was apparently a meteor that fell nearby and they um, used that as kind of the impetus, if you will, to worship the moon goddess, Diana. Uh, You can read about it in Acts 19, I believe it is. Um, But that was a source of business and economy and kind of drove the cosmopolitan nature of Ephesus. Idols, right? Idolatry at its very root of its economy. And Well, these people had come to know Jesus. Why is he, I mean, they're not going to bow down to some stone or wood or gold or silver. Why is he saying, keep yourselves from idols? I mean, on first glance, it really doesn't seem to make sense, right? It's kind of a moot point. I know better than to go to bow down before some stone idol. Well, it's much more subtle than that. Turn uh, back with me to chapter 2. Chapter 2, John describes two threats to God's preeminent place in our lives. And I have an outline, I kind of gave the guys in the back, and I probably ought to look at it just to make sure we stay on it. Um, But the first point is God has a rightful, unique, preeminent place in our lives. Okay? Um, we can go all the way back to the Old Testament, of course, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt, he tells the children of Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he says, don't make a graven image of anything. Right, right after they heard that, what did they do? They made a graven image. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. Okay? Less, than, you know, less than six weeks And here they are, they're doing exactly what God told them not to do. And we see that pattern among the children of Israel, okay, the chosen people of God. We see that pattern of idolatry throughout their history. Okay? Um, So there's an overt threat, right? There's always an overt threat to undermine God's place around us, we can see it by redefining who Jesus is. Okay, you have probably, if I know the, the people who read any serious um, religious writings have seen, you know, how scholarship has tried to redefine who Jesus is and make him just one of the mythic uh, images or prototypes of the salvific story that you can find in any old religion. Um, that's been going on for a long time, it's not new. Just got new scholarly words to it, but that's an overt threat to God's place. But John's going to say, you know what? There's some more covert threats. And in chapter two, let's uh, let's start in verse 15. He says this. Remember who he's writing to. Okay. In fact, now let's start up in verse 12 because. Um, it's, it's pretty significant. He kind of addresses the whole congregation. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Remember that. Why are your sins forgiven? Why do you have fellowship with God? Because of Jesus, his name. I'm writing to you fathers, older people in the faith, people who've been believers for a long time, because you know him who is from the beginning. How does John begin his gospel? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Fathers, you know who Jesus is. Okay? Don't let false teachers redefine Him. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the Father. The Heavenly Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Interesting that he repeats that to the fathers, the same thing. Calls them back to you already know who the true God is. You know who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. There's encouragement there important encouragement because he's going to go down a few verses later and say there are antichrists in the world. There are people out there who are trying to replace, to usurp the authority of Jesus and the place of Jesus in your life. But before we get to those overt external threats, let's look at the internal in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Well, lest We get confused about that because remember John's the one who wrote God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So John, what do you mean by this? If anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. Then this can't be the same world that God loves. It's a different world that He's talking about. What is it? For all that is in the world... The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So, all of a sudden, he's kind of crystallizing our definition for us, right? God so loved the world, obviously, God says, whoever believes, he's talking about people. He's talking about individuals that Jesus died for. That's the world God wants to redeem, but there's another aspect of world cosmos is the word um, that God is not in love with, and God does not anticipate redeeming. In fact, it's going to pass away. He says, "The desires of the flesh." Okay, simple enough. Um, all you got to do is think of your five senses and the things you want to satisfy your desires. Okay? that's the desires of your flesh. Desires of the eyes. What do you see and want? And the pride of life. And if you you have an ESV, there's a note there that says pride in possessions. Taking and finding your value, the essence of who you are in what you materially have. Okay? All those things, it says... That's not from the Father. That's not something that God had in his mind and created. But it's, it's from the world. The world that is passing away along with its desires. But then he contrasts that and says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. What are these subtle things that try to usurp God's place in our, in our lives? Do you remember what Jesus said the greatest commandment was? Somebody asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And he answered, and he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And he added mind, by the way, and with all your strength. The, uh, the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that has that, the Shema passage, Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, you shall love the Lord your God. Um, It doesn't have mind in it. Which is interesting because it's almost as if Jesus anticipated that the Western mindset, the Greek mindset, would end up learning to compartmentalize spiritual from material. When in actuality, we're not able to truly holistically do that. You know, we... Ross spent some time defining that holistic mission principle. Well, there's a sense in which spirituality is only holistic. Healthy spirituality is only holistic. In fact, John's going to argue that in his book. There are a bunch of things that people say, these false teachers say, but John says, you know what, it doesn't really matter what they say. In fact, he says, even if we say something, if our lives don't match up with what we say, it's not worth investing in. Let me, let me read some of the things that he said. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say, if our words convey something, but our actual walk is contrary, then we're not telling the truth. Our practice doesn't match up. And John includes himself in that. He's, under, he's up for scrutiny. Check me out. Right? If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there was a key here because these false teachers were saying a lot of things, and they were teaching a lot of theory, but in practice, what they were saying and what they were living were two different things. Um, Let me give you an example, a real world example. So my job, I worked in a pharmacy benefit management uh, arm of a company, and one of the things that I was told when I took my current position was that I needed to get my pharmacy technician certification. Okay. Well, I didn't have time to go to school or go, you know, stay in a pharmacy for a couple years and get that certification, so I got the books, I studied, and I took the test and passed it. Um, <clears throat> now, if, if you ask me to tell you how to create an injectable chemotherapy medication, I could tell you how, but if you've been prescribed that medication, you do not want me mixing it. Okay? I know the theory. I know the theory just fine. On paper, I can write it out. But when it comes to actually doing the praxis, there's no continuity there. All right? So these guys, they're saying a lot. And John is saying, it really doesn't matter what they say, right? It doesn't even matter what we say. If our life doesn't match up. And he says, scrutinize. If one says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. If one says he abides in him, that is in God in Jesus, he ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If one says he is in the light and yet hates his brother, he is in darkness until now. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Those are the things that John clearly spells out because people were throwing a lot of words around. They were saying a lot of things, right? But it really doesn't matter what you say if your life doesn't match up. right? So, important. um, The words we say. Now, John also is countering this whole idea that you need to have a higher knowledge. There's something Jesus plus, right? Jesus plus, and you got it. If you don't have the plus, sorry, you're, you're left out. And John... You know, this word know, this whole idea of knowledge and knowing. um, This culture, the Greek philosophy, um, some of the Eastern mysticism, was pushing that to a, again, a theoretical level and not a practical level. Whereas if you look through the Old Testament and through the Scriptures, the emphasis on knowledge is not simply a body of truth, but it's an experiential interactive knowledge. It's where the rubber meets the road. And so John gives them a whole list of things that we know. Instead of undermining their confidence, he's trying to encourage them because there are a lot of things that we do know. And he says this. Here's how you can know. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We know that we are in him because whoever keeps his word, right? In him, the love of God is perfected. We know that it's the last hour because there are many antichrists who have risen. And this is a good, good time to kind of think about that term, antichrist, just so you're not, you know, Americanizing it. Because we've kind of Americanized the whole apocalyptic view. And so we've made the antichrist to be Henry Kissinger or whoever, you know. Um, but... Antichrist simply means not simply somebody who's opposed to Christ, but also somebody who is usurping the place that Christ deserves, okay? So these people are trying to usurp Jesus and obviously oppose him and his body. And John continues in chapter 2 with what we know, and he says, you know what, we know... This is verse 18. Um, toward the end, it says, "We know the last hour." But then 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Right? We know these antichrists because they left. They've not continued with the teaching of the apostles. They've not continued with Jesus and the gospel. And this goes right back to what Paul's warning was, right? Wolves are going to come in. They're going to try to undermine the church. Guard yourselves. Be careful. Um, John encourages them, and he says, You have been anointed, though, by the Holy One. What does he mean by that? And you all have knowledge. Well, he goes on to explain that the Holy Spirit's been given to everyone who knows Jesus. Fellowship. Right? You have discernment within you. In fact, he's going to go and say, you have no need that anyone teach you about this higher knowledge. That's the context, right? We all still need teachers. That's why God gave teachers to the church. But we don't need a higher knowledge to know the gospel. Okay? Okay. We do need to be taught to grow up into the fullness of maturity of Jesus but not to have eternal life. So we know, we know that uh, when He appears, we're going to be like Him because we'll see Him as He is, John says. We know, you know, that everyone who practiced righteousness, righteousness is born of Him. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. And here is again where he is drawing a clear underline. He's putting it in bold type. I don't think he's putting it in all caps, but he's definitely putting it in in a bold type that Jesus came to take away sin, right? And that the practice of life is definitely something that needs to be impacted. Because if you say that you know him and you continue to practice sin, he's going to say you don't. Right? And again, remember he said at the beginning, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. So he's not saying if you have sinned, you, know, you don't know Jesus. But he's saying if you continue practicing and your lifestyle unrepentant is continuing that direction, he's indicating very clearly Jesus hasn't come in. Okay? Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. That's the practice of life. Now, are we all perfect the minute we come to know Jesus? I can tell you I wasn't, okay? God doesn't make us all perfect immediately. Thankfully, he doesn't expose us to every single minor sin in our lives the day we come to know Jesus. But he pulls that curtain back as we grow to know Christ and continues to bring about the nature of God within us. And that's one of the things that we can know and we can have confidence in that he is going to, just like about three or four weeks ago, Ross preached, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So if he's not working in you and you don't have a conviction about practice and you say, I know him, you need to reexamine your conviction. right? Reexamine your faith. Is it Jesus that you're placing your faith in? We know this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We shall know that we are of the truth by loving our brothers in deed and in truth. We know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. You know the spirit of God by every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And this is directly contrary to what the teachers were trying to say. Remember, they were trying to starting to say that the material world was evil, the spiritual world is good, therefore, it really doesn't matter what you do in the material world. Um, but God transcend, transcended the material world. In fact, He will one day redeem the material world. We know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error the one who listens to us are the ones who are of the spirit of truth so here's where the apostle now is calling upon his own authority as an eyewitness of Jesus as one who was sent to proclaim the good news he's saying you know what if those people do not listen to us there of the spirit of error. And this is the crux, kind of what I was talking about with words, right? One of the ways that we can avoid that intrusion by the enemy and that desire to really uh, usurp the place of God in our lives is to allow God's word to continually develop our relationship and our walk with him. If we were to have time, we'd go over to Ephesians chapter 4, and we see where Paul says that little... Well, actually, I'm going to read it, okay, because it is a significant passage. It talks about maturity and the reason that God um, gave gifts to the body. He says that he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip saints for the work of the ministry. And Ross has mentioned that many times, that we're all ministers, right? We start here, we go everywhere. For the building up of the body of Christ, and here's a key term, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's the overt attack. Redefining terms, redefining our words. Communication gets blurred. So it's really important that we stay in the Word But not just that we read the word and twist its meaning to mean what we want it to mean. We need to read it for understanding. What did God intend for that audience in the first century? What did the apostle mean? And we need to understand it and bring it and see what the transcendent truth is that transcends time and culture and history and place and Allow that to speak into our lives. But it requires diligence on our part. Words are important. They're significant. The gospel is important. If we're going to communicate the gospel with others, it's not just simply about believing in God. It's not even simply believing history. I was somebody who believed in the historical Jesus. I mean, the real historical Jesus, the one that's in Scripture. But it was kind of like my CPHT. It was theory. And until I came to acknowledge my own need for a Savior and a transformation of my life where, just as the Scripture says, He came to do away with the works of the devil, to do away with sin, until I came to the place where I realized God wanted to do away with the sin in my life it was just theory. John's trying to warn them. There are teachers out there that are going to try to redefine that. The sad thing is, if we go to Revelation chapter 3, we run into what happened to the church at Ephesus, or excuse me, chapter 2, the church of Ephesus, right? Same apostle, writing a few years later, probably, maybe 10 years later. Um, And he says, he's taken a message from Jesus himself, right? John received a, a revelation from Jesus. And you know what? He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. Hey, you cannot bear with those who are evil. Hey, man, they're even looking out for false teachers. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. Hey, we got the litmus test. And guess what? They're teaching false doctrine. They're out. I know you are enduring patiently. All right? So there's constantly been persecution for the last 50 years or so of their existence. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I mean, we could do all the right things, right? Remember from where you have fallen, repent. Which simply means turn around, do a 180, go back, right? Go back and do the work she did at first. If not... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. In fact, if we, you know, kind of put that into the context here, um, Jesus was the first love, right? He was the first love of those people that abandoned. Many of them uh, took economic hits because, frankly, Ephesus was all built on idolatry, the economy. And then many of them were involved in the occult and they spent, you know, I mean, burned all their occultic materials, lost a lot of money there on purpose, right? Because they came to Christ. Um, They did a lot of great things to make Jesus the first place in their life. And then they got into the the thing about doing church, right? We're going to keep our doctrine straight. We're going to make sure that know we work hard and we um, keep our testimony and do all those things to fight against the the cultural try to you know the cultural pressure Um, and in the process of doing all that the one who should have had the first place fell down in the priority list Um, so what does that mean for us well I, I think we need to take Solomon's admonition to heart as well as what John says, guard yourselves from idols, right? Remember what Solomon wrote? And this is an ironic thing because in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, remember Proverbs was written by Solomon, most of it. Quite a few others that aren't, but most of Proverbs was written by him. And just so you know, in case, in case you don't know Solomon's story, Solomon is... Um, He's the second king of Israel. Okay? He's the son of David. He, uh, when he took over the, the throne, it was, there was a lot of turmoil at the time, but he, uh, God came to him. God actually visited him and said, what do, you, what do you want? And Solomon said, you know what? I really want to have a wise and understanding heart so I can lead your people well. And, uh, and God said, okay, that's a great request. I'm going to give it to you. And because you've not asked for wealth, you've not asked for victory over your enemies and all these other things that most kings ask for, I'm going to bless you with all the rest of it. And so we know Solomon is the wisest, really the wisest man uh, in the world, but certainly the wisest of uh, writers of the Old Testament in that sense he written much of the wisdom literature. But God appeared to him another time after he built the temple. God blessed him with their, the opportunity to build the temple in Jerusalem, the first physically situated place um, where God's presence was made known and worshipped. Um, before it had been in a tent. And, um, and then Solomon began to, began to do what the kings around him did. He started marrying for the purpose of political expediency. And scripture says that his wives turned his heart away from God to worship false gods. It actually says that. That by the end of his life, he turned away from God. And actually, this is... God, it says, God was very angry because God had appeared to him twice, it says, in some form. And God was angry because having known the living God, having encountered the living God, having been blessed by the living God, having written scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, this man turned away to worship stone, wood, gold, silver. God's, because his wives turned his heart away. Now, I don't think any of us are in danger of that. We have the Holy Spirit with us, but we're certainly in danger of not heeding this warning in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where Solomon says, Guard your hearts with all diligence. Let me read this version. I'm thinking of the version that I grew up with, sorry. Uh, keep your heart with all vigilance. I kind of like that too. For from it flow the springs of life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. So ask yourself, okay, some questions. Where are your greatest affections? What Elicits our strongest positive and negative emotions. Is it stars hockey? Sorry, John. Not, not personal there. Um, or is it somebody coming to know Jesus and you know their life being transformed? What captivates your will and zest? and your drive for life, what is it? What impassions you, gives you energy and motivates you? How about on the mind side? So that was heart and soul. What about mind? On what do you allow yourself to dwell? Do you prioritize any of your discretionary thought time? Okay, and here I'm gonna to have to admit my weakness as a male. Okay? Multitasking is not a strength. Okay? Um, you no, know, when I'm working, my mind has to be focused on work. I, I can't um, focus on multiple things at once. But when I have discretionary time to think, to develop my mental faculties, what do I think about? What consumes me? Finally, if we're going to love God with our strength. It's not so much about the what, right? I mean, there is a what, there is a boundary line. You can't just do anything you want with your energy because you, you do have moral guidelines. God's given us moral things, that you know, boundary lines. But He does say that whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, you do all to the glory of God. And He says, if you know, talking to uh, people who are employees. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. So we know that we can expend our energy doing other things, quote, secular things, for God. So the question is, for whom, not what so much, but for whom do you expend your energy? Because you can love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Um, the question is, do we? And are we guarding ourselves from those things that want to steal that place that only he deserves? Let's pray together. Father, we ask you to help us and guard us, protect us uh, from those things that would steal us away from you, and help us to be vigilant ourselves because there is a responsibility that we have to guard our hearts, to guard our souls, our minds, and the way we use our strength to glorify Jesus. Thank you that you're merciful. Thank you that you're gracious. Thank you that you came to forgive us of sin Thank you that you're transforming us and you're making us new, and we ask that our lives would bring glory and honor and praise to Jesus. Protect our church. Protect us in His home.